I have a theory on your question, the one you, you said, why do we focus so much on the blame? And I think it's a defense mechanism against the shame that we might feel yeah. ourselves. You know, I think back and I feel into my own body. I can still feel shame associated with the Hulk. And so rather than wanting to be responsible for the conflict that's there, I seek to find fault. I seek to find someone to blame so that it's not me. And one of the adulting moves that I have come to understand is it is possible for you to be correct and for me to be correct. Right? It's possible for you to have a truth and for me to have a truth. It is possible for there to be conflict without blame and without shame. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. So there we were, standing in the parking lot, in the rain, screaming at each other about chairs. My client's voice had a mix of disbelief, anger, exhaustion. She was sharing the recent round of conflict between her and her co-founder and the growing intensity and frequency of their conflict. I just feel stuck. We're stuck. We're stuck in a loop and we can't get out of it. She shared again with some exhaustion in her voice. Her story, their story, it's not unique. Conflicts are part of work. Conflicts are part of startups. Conflicts are part of being in a family. Conflicts are part of being human. How do you deal with them? And how might you deal with them better? The answer to those questions usually doesn't lie in understanding the present as much as it actually lives in the past. Time and time again, we see the conflict management of our childhood show up in an argument with our co-founder. For some, that might mean turning towards blame and anger directed at others. For others, that might mean anger and blame directed toward themselves. This is one of my favorites. And while others still look for ways to just run away, to hide from it, this is also one of my favorites. And yet there are some who will work tirelessly to moderate the tension without actually putting themselves in the middle of it. We all have our strategies that are well-worn and well-tested. And oftentimes, they're no longer sufficient for how we would like to engage today. As author James Baldwin says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. You must start by facing it. My client's sadness was evident in her voice. He just keeps getting angry over these little things. Why can't we just get along? She said, when he gets angry, all I want to do is just run away. My curiosity intensified. And when you're standing there in his anger, who or what are you reminded of? My father, she said with a bit of shock and annoyance. When he's angry, he reminds me of my father. And all I did then was run away too. When we get stressed and conflict is stressful, we revert to our past. My client returns to her five-year-old self in those moments of conflict, which takes her further away, and her co-founder as well, from what they really want, to get out of the loop. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler is the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group, 
and is the author of Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work at Home. She joins Jerry in this episode to talk about conflict, the typical patterns people engage in when faced, and perhaps most importantly, how you might start to get out of it. Because conflicts are unavoidable as much as some of us wish they were. But as Jennifer and Jerry remind us in this conversation, we can break the loop. Enjoy. Are you in the midst of a major life change and feeling alone in that quagmire of feelings? Are you longing for more meaning in your personal or professional life? Or are you already in the midst of the turmoil and excitement of a business or role transition? This June, the 6th through the 14th, join Reboot Guides Jim Marsden and Jade Shear for a -a one-of-a-kind nine-day adventure in Wolf Creek, Montana. You'll emerge with more clarity and more you. Learn more at reboot.io slash quest. Welcome, Jennifer. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you. Uh, so our, our, our guest today is Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, who is a brilliant coach and uh, a new but dear friend. And you have a new book out. And I'm super stoked to talk to you about the book, but more specifically about the content of the book. And before we get started, can you give us the name of the book? It's called Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And I will tell you that I'm standing here, I've got the uncorrected proof, and I've already used it three times with clients. And I said, you should read this book when it comes out. So I'm super excited to talk to you about it. So let's dive in. And, you know, um, I think one of the most challenging aspects of the job that I hold, that we hold, is working with conflict. Uh, Conflict in our our own lives, but conflict within the lives of our clients. And one of the first questions that occurred to me was in sort of reading the book, but also really diving deep into your background, it's been so clear to me that understanding and unpacking conflict has been an important part of your life. Um, Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I think I know why, but why has that focus, why have you focused so much on conflict? What is there for you? Well, it can be all traced back as for so many of us, these things are uh, traceable to how we grew up. And so how I grew up, I grew up across the street, living across the street from my grandparents who had um, come to New York from Europe where they fled in the uh, late 1930s uh, because of the Holocaust. Uh, They fled Nazi Europe and it took them about six years to make it to New York. They had a kind of roundabout route. Uh, through Italy and from from Austria to Italy and Portugal and Switzerland um, and eventually to the Dominican Republic where they uh, stayed for a number of years where my father was born and then they came um, to New York. And I grew up hearing stories uh, from my grandmother of those adventures. And when I was a kid, she spoke about them as these, it sounded very romantic, these beautiful romantic Mm. adventures of being on the beach in Sosua, Dominican Republic, and my father was born and they had a my grandfather uh, worked on the banana plantation. And it was not until I became really a young adult that 
it began to dawn on me that these were not only tales of a romantic adventure, but a story about fleeing for their survival. Mm -hmm. um, and when that hit me, I began to look back on my life, on their lives in a completely different way and look at the effects of, you know, worldwide global conflict on one family, on me. And as I write about in the book, my grandfather had a lot of pain. He left behind um, a father and a brother who he never saw again when he left. He had two other brothers who uh, ended up in Australia for the rest of their lives. So we still have the letters that they wrote back and forth to each other, but they rarely saw each other until, you know, they passed away. And so he had a lot of bottled up grief as immigrants. Uh, they didn't have the, 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 the luck or the pleasure or the ability to, you know, they didn't have, have grief counselors. They didn't have therapists available to them. And so they did the, the best that they could with the experiences that they had. I think my grandfather had a lot of grief and, and fear um, and sadness inside of him. And that would often come out in anger. Mm -hmm. and I have, you know, many memories of being, uh, they would take care of us after school. My parents both worked full time and we would go across the street and my grandmother would, you know, would take care of us. My grandfather would come home from the factory where he worked every day after work and you never kind of knew what was going to happen. Was he going to be happy that day? Was he going to blow up that day? So learning how to manage that as a child was not easy. Of course, you know, it led to conflict in the family between my grandfather and my grandmother with me and my brother, with my, you know, with other family members as well. Um, so that was, that was one piece of my experience growing up. And then on the other side of my family, we have my maternal grandmother, Florence, who used to sit between us in the family car on Sundays when we would drive from the Bronx to Connecticut, where we'd go to visit uh, extended family. And to the country. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you may have those memories as well. <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn. I know the country. <laughs> so we would go off to the country every Sunday and Grandma Florence would be in the middle of my brother and me in the backseat and mom and dad mm. in the front. And there'd be screaming every which way. And at some point, Grandma Florence would just stop and say, cha, cha, in this very uh. Yiddish, calm way. And with that, she would then tell us a story about what we had done that day as from the perspective of a little child who had also done those very same things. And suddenly the whole car would just, and I think it was really her presence it was not necessarily telling the story. It was not necessarily anything she said because she didn't really say that much, but it was her presence in the car that led things to settle down relatively quickly. So see, having both sides of this family kind of juxtaposed uh, against each other was how I grew up and, and mm. led me to naturally be interested in how can we work with deep emotions like rage, anger, fear, sadness, um, both in ourselves and also in others. Mm. And how can we be that presence that my grandma Florence was for me? How can mm. I be that for myself? How can I be mm. that for others? And also mm. now, how can I teach others how to, be that presence for themselves. How can I teach? If she was the conflict whisperer for us. How can how can we um, all learn how to be our own conflict whisperers? Mm. So, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to turn to your book. 
and read a little bit. Uh, and because you do share a little bit about both grandparents, both experiences of the, um, I understand maternal grandma was Florence. What was, what was, uh, your father's father's name? Hans. Hans. And what did you call him? Opa. They were Oma. Opa. Yeah. Oma and Opa. Right. Because they came from Vienna. So that's German you know, mm. names for grandmother and grandfather. Mm. You know, those who follow the podcast um, and, and my work know that I get fascinated by the roots of our programming, if you will, the way in which the choices that we make in our lives, which seem to come from some conscious prefrontal cortex place, actually link back into the past. And what I heard was, I'll read to you, 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 in in exploring the question of why conflict, and you, you, you speak about, I was intrigued by how emotions such as anger and sadness contribute to conflict. I had grown up in a family of screamers and door slammers, of which my grandfather was the most extreme example. And I remember reading that and thinking back to my own experience of violence in the household. And, and that's the word, that door slamming. It's, uh, I often think that the body experiences the potential of violence almost as much as it experiences actual violence. Mm-hmm. And yelling has the potential of violence. Yeah. And so then you wrote, and it sort of struck me, he had fled Vienna in 1938 in anticipation of the Nazi invasion, and he had eventually landed in New York where he had rebuilt his life. Today, and I was really struck by this line, today I can just barely comprehend the pain he endured, the grief and guilt of leaving people he loved behind forever. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in my experience, I think in that little section, I think you do something really important, which is that you're drawing a connection between the outward experience of, of someone's suffering, which in this case was anger, sadness, potential violence, yelling, screaming, all of the attributes that we, that we connect with conflict and his inner suffering. Mm-hmm. My dear friend and oft-quoted teacher, Parker Palmer, likes to say that violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. Mm-hmm. And then in, in getting you to recount your story, I was struck by something that you said. And you said... And so naturally, naturally, you wanted to intellectually understand it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to challenge you on that. I don't know that it's naturally. I think in my experience, the more typical responses that I have seen are one, to emulate the behavior and take it on as one's own. And the other is to avoid like hell any potential conflict. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Does this resonate with you? 
Well, absolutely it does. And I see that, so, I mean, we see that in the world writ large. So if you look at international conflict, um, you know, we see that nations commit often against their own uh, mm. citizens, what has been committed against them. And we see that in, in, at every level of society. So it goes from international all the way down to in marriages, just between two people, um, and in families and in well, between mothers and daughters, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Referencing a little story Jennifer tells in her book. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right that very often we perpetuate uh, what has been done to us if we're not uh, able to be thoughtful about it. I think the fact mm. that I, you might even say in, you know, in my growing up, I, my experience on the one side of my family was mediated <laughs> by the experience on the other side of the family. So having that calm presence of my maternal grandmother, Florence, was right. not, you know, that was no joke. That was real. And mm. it is quite possible, had she not been who she was, that I might then have continued along, just like you're talking about, where I would have just kind of unthinkingly or unable to stop myself, perpetuated the same kinds of situations that were handed down to me onto others. That's no, no, reaction number one. Thought mm -hmm. number two is, um, I'd be lying if I told you, and, I, and I'm kind of frank about this in, in my writing as well, I'd be lying if I told you that it, that it hasn't come through me. So I think one of the reasons why it, ha it has been an intellectual path for me is because um, I had, have, even as a kid, had no interest in perpetuating what I experienced. Um, and it is so incredibly hard, as you know, to not do that, to not perpetuate what has been perpetuated against you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you ask me, well, why did you then go the intellectual route? Maybe one, you know, you could argue that in my family, education was paramount. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was obvious to me that if I wanted to understand how to not do what mm -hmm. others had done to them and what others had mm -hmm. done to me, then I had, you know, the, the most obvious way was to go figure it out intellectually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one thing that's actually interesting on that is I was very clear immediately, you know, immediately upon graduating from college that I wanted to go learn and, and work at the mm -hmm. program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, which I did. It, it took me a couple of years and I got there. Um, and I did learn intellectually what, you know, the, the, it, at that time and place, what the hate, you know, what the, the zeitgeist was. And it took being there for just a few years, about five years for me to realize, hey, I think there's more to it than just the intellectual side. That mm -hmm. if we take people who are incredibly emotionally hooked and give them this formula and say, mm -hmm. go find yourself a win-win solution by being level-headed and clear-headed, that it doesn't fly. I knew it didn't fly in my own family. I knew it didn't work in the Middle East sometimes. I knew it did you know, sometimes, but not others. I became really curious about well, why is that, you know, why does it work sometimes and in what circumstances does it not work? What occurs to me, I really relate to what you're saying because 
I often speak about the fact that inside of me, I feel like I, I make reference a lot of times to Marvel superheroes. So everybody forgive me. I'm a little boy when it comes to that. Um, but I often make reference to the Hulk who lives inside of me. And um, I remember as a kid really coming into relationship with that because I would often feel after the Hulk would show up and I would rage mm -hmm. as part of the conflicts that I was experiencing, I would feel a tremendous amount of shame. And it really took um, an adult move, mm -hmm. a movement in my adulthood to understand that for me, the Hulk, and perhaps for you, the Hulk part of Hans needed to be understood and welcomed emotionally and not merely intellectually. Because the intellectual understanding makes sense. Of course, of course, this is a response. Mm -hmm. But there was that little moment of empathy that I saw in that little section in which he said, I can only imagine what the guilt and grief was like. Right. right? And that's, that's felt a very adult response to the, to the threat of Hans, the way he might exhibit his pain and the way you might have learned to exhibit the same pain. Yeah. And to turn that, that experience into something really quite profound and sacred which is to ease the suffering of others. You know, before we started, I asked you about some, some things on your wall. And what occurs to me is above your head behind you is the Hebrew uh, saying for peace. And that's not an accident, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's there to remind me every day that that's, that's, you know, it's one of my values. It's, it's, the one of the strongest values that I hold and we need to remind ourselves of these things uh, sometimes I will also say you know I, I teach this work in workshop settings mm. and I've done that for 10 years and there are so many moments in these workshops where you see and I know you've experienced these in the workshops and the work you do with clients as well you see a light bulb go off for someone their entire body changes, their face changes. Um, and it's just this, this transformative moment. And so often, I think, those transformative moments occur. And my hope is that when people read this book, those transformative moments will occur for them just in the reading of the book as well. Those transformative moments occur when people are able to do what you just described. Mm -hmm. Able to... Put yourself really, truly, I mean, I know it's kind of a platitude that we'd say put yourself in someone else's shoes, but to really, truly put yourself in that other person's shoes just for a moment. It doesn't need to last forever. You don't need to do it for the rest of your life, but just for a moment. Mm. And really ask yourself, what in the world would lead this person, given everything they've done in their life, given all the background and experience that I know about that person, what would lead them to behave the way that they are. If I right. they're greedy, or I say they're angry, or I say they're hurting me, why would they do that? And when we ask that kind of question, as you know, we get to that adult place that you're talking about. And often, you know, it happens in the in a snap, just in the blink of an eye. Yeah. It's not hard, but we need to make the space to ask that question. 
Yeah. It's, it's, um, it, it, it takes an important movement um, where you no longer see that other person as, um, you know, in my book, I, I refer to it as the rational other because everybody else is always irrational. But to begin to imagine your way in using your, your own experience as an empathetic guide, to imagine your way into that space. You know, when, when I work with a client, I, I might joke, um, okay, I understand that you think that they're being, the other person is being a sociopath, but the truth is the number of sociopaths is actually pretty low. <laughs> In fact, there's usually a rationale mm -hmm. for every stance that someone is taking. And that um, one way that might be useful is to, is to start to imagine the rationale, the needs that they might be trying to meet by doing this behavior that you find so conflictual, so awful. And to, 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 does, in your experience, does that, does that jive with, with the stance that you're talking about taking? Yes, absolutely. I also talk often about the fundamental attribution bias, which basically mm. says that we attribute our own behavior to circumstances. So I was late because there was traffic. Right. Because I'm disrespectful of you. It's because there was traffic that was out of my control. And we attribute other people's behavior to their personality. They're, right. <laughs> They're so disorganized. <laughs> they can't get their act together. Right. It's a very well-established psychological principle. Um, <laughs> and it is unbelievable. Even when we know that this fundamental attribution bias exists, we still uh, fall victim to it. We pray to it. Um, and I think there's an ask, there's a piece of that that helps describe what you're talking about, which is it's just too easy for us, especially when our amygdala is hijacked. We're you know not uh, using the full capacity of our brains. We're in that lizard brain mode. All of the cylinders are kind of you know point. Everything's pointing in the direction of we are not going to let that other person off the hook. Mm -hmm. So the ability to have as practice to step back. Um, and, and notice what we're doing, notice what's happening, that we're, you know, pointing a finger at someone else for something is first of all, incredibly help helpful. Um, and in the book, I call them practices. I call these things practices because that is what they are. And you and I, you know, know full well from our Buddhist practice training, but anyone listening who has a yoga practice or any meditation practice or a practice of going to the gym, uh, or practice practicing an instrument. These are all various different kinds of practices, and we know from doing those practices that doing them over time helps you get better at them. Mm -hmm. And so, having a practice of noticing what's happening in the moment, asking yourself what else could be possibly responsible for why that person's acting the way that they are, what in their background and their history might explain their behavior can be incredibly helpful. Well, that, that's super helpful. And, and you mentioned the book and the practices in the book. Let, let's jump into that for a little bit. What is an optimal outcome? Mm -hmm. An optimal outcome is one that not only takes into account what your deepest wishes are 
in any given situation. Because we really do want you to wish big and really ask yourself in an ideal situation, what would I like to happen here? Um, but it also takes into account what is the reality of the situation that I am facing? Because mm -hmm. if you think about this as a, um, on a graph, mm -hmm. and you've got a, you know, one axis, the, the, the Y axis going up to the sky is what do I want to have happen in an ideal situation? And then the X axis, the horizontal axis is, um, what is the reality that I, what are the constraints that I'm facing? What's the reality that I'm facing? What are the people, the reality about the people and their personalities, their roles mm -hmm. in, a, in a either team or family or any other context? Um, so you, an optimal outcome is one that, that maximizes both of these uh, axes, both of these ideas. So it's not an optimal outcome if it's the best thing you can possibly imagine, but it ain't ever going to fly because it's not gonna fit the reality of the people. But why is the optimal outcome not me winning? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's often, so, so the reality is an optimal outcome um, is often not what you expect or not what you necessarily wish would happen, mm. but what can happen given the reality of the situation. And I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that people should be resigned and, mm. and just cynical and, and resigned to, well, what I want is never going to happen, so why even try? And these people are mm. so horrible. I, you know, there's nothing I can do about this. No, that is not at all what we're talking about. Um, what we're talking about is being honest and clear with yourself. And I love the fact that Ray Dalio, um, mm. <laughs> who wrote this, amazingly great book um, called Principles, Life and Work, who is the, you know, iconic hedge fund founder. He talks, uh, you know, I can say this as a psychologist, but when, when a hedge fund founder says you need to take reality into account in order to maximize your output, um, you know, it's the same exact idea. It's the same exact idea. And if you want to have an optimal outcome, you need to take reality into account. And that doesn't mean um, resigning yourself to it. It means accepting what the reality is and really looking carefully and closely at what that reality is. It, it reminds me of a Zen aphorism that I bastardized years ago, which is this being so, so what? Right. Meaning this is the situation. Right. Clear-sighted, no delusion, no tipping over into you know, kind of pathological pessimism or, you know, unrealistic optimism, this being so, right. now what will you do about it? And what is the, what is the, the, the movement towards, um, you know, if we can, we can make it more specific, you have two co-founders in conflict. Mm -hmm. Neither party is going to leave. What are you going to do about it? Right. Right? That's a reality that you have to work with. And you may not love each other but you can work past the conflicts that have sort of held you back. Am I seeing that correctly? Yes, absolutely. So, so often, you know, this work that I do is most relevant to people where <coughs> walking away doesn't seem like a viable option. Mm -hmm. If it were, you could do it and free yourself of conflict quite easily. 
But the reason why people stay, one very obvious reason why people stay stuck in conflict is because it is so, or it can seem so incredibly difficult to walk away. So the example that you just gave of two co-founders, neither one of them is going anywhere. And so how are they going to work together? How are they going to work things out when they can't stand each other at this point? Mm-hmm. This, these practices help in that situation because it, one of the practices helps you really think clearly and carefully about, well, what would be the costs that I would pay if I walked away? What would be the costs if he or she walked away? Uh, what are the costs that I'm paying by staying? Mm-hmm. Stay in conflict. I mean, people can stay in conflict for years mm-hmm. and they're paying costs that entire time. And often the costs just keep getting worse and worse and worse. But mm-hmm. they mean those costs can often seem better than the costs of walking away when, if we would sit down and actually ask ourselves to compare the costs, if we would walk away versus the costs being put. We might mm. we might see from a more rational lens actually that that perhaps walking away is going to benefit us more and, and pay fewer costs. But if we do that analysis, then we see that staying put is going to have fewer costs associated with it. Then the question is, what reality do I need to come face to face with about who this other person is, about who I am, about what this mm. is all about, and what do I need to maybe accept mm-hmm. this isn't going to, this piece is not going to change. So what else can I do? It mm-hmm. also is a matter of asking the right kinds of questions. So the other day a client said to me, well, why can't she just do <laughs> <laughs> I've had those conversations. <laughs> <laughs> right. Incredibly common. And I, you know, talk about empathy. I had so much empathy for her. Mm. Because she just wanted this other person to change so badly. Why can't she just do it? And I said, you know, we could ask that why question. Why can't, why Mm. didn't, why haven't they? Till we're blue in the face, nothing will ever change. What if we switch that question into a how can I? But I mean, this is, you know, not, this is a relatively simple, simple shift. But uh, how can I? What can I do in the face of that? So this other person is the way that they are. What can I do? Mm. Mm. It, it reminds me, uh, one of your, uh, one of the folks that you quote is the brilliant, wonderful, loving Sylvia Borstein, who is uh, a brilliant uh, Buddhist teacher. And you quote, even if it were ever possible to know the answer to the question, who started this fight? it would not solve the problem of needing to know what should we do now? Right. Right. And that, I, that quote um, heads the chapter on imagine your ideal future. Mm. And that is because a couple of things. One is it is so incredibly common. There's something, I don't, this, I, this would be a fascinating thing to do some research on mm. understand why do we find so much pleasure in a way almost in looking back and pointing our fingers and blaming one another, mm. blaming ourselves, blaming each mm. other. So, and I, I don't use that word pleasure lightly. I think that we often. I, 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 I see what you mean. It's almost addictive in find, trying right. to find the fault. Right. 
right? Yeah. And I hear, I mean, I have clients all the time kind of wanting to go there. And, and sometimes, you know, we need to stay there as a, as a, as a, as a coach, as an advisor. You need mm-hmm. to be with mm-hmm. them, and listen to, to that to some degree. And um, just like that why question, it's often not productive. What is more productive is to turn our attention to, okay, uh, you know, where are we now? How can I observe where I am today? And where do I want to go in the future? But the classic win-win negotiation methodology of, you know, tell me what your interests are, I'll tell you what my interests are, and together we'll work it out and we'll come up with some options that meet your interests and my interests and we'll, we'll, have, we'll have some kind of agreement so often doesn't work because when we're stuck in conflicts that are emotionally driven, mm-hmm. where we can't easily walk away where the costs would be so high. It's not going to be easy for us to walk away when, when, val- when, when the values that we hold are driving conflict that are deeply held. Um, when those things are present, rational solutions just aren't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. That is what I have seen over 20 years of work and research. And so um, the question is, well, what do we do then? Because if the rational ideas and the win-win solutions were going to work, they probably would have worked a long time ago, but they wow. haven't. So my advice is put the brain, just like you might have been suggesting to me earlier, mm-hmm. put the intellect aside for a moment and activate the imagination. Activate mm-hmm. your imaginative mind. Mm. And, and ask yourself, in an ideal future, putting aside mm. what I said before about taking reality into account for a moment, in an ideal future, what would I like to see happen then? What would I like to hear happening then? What would mm. it feel like then? What would my emotions be like then? Um, what might I even be tasting then? So maybe I'm mm. you know, having a mm-hmm. love, loving and lovely dinner with a client or a spouse or... Mm. Uh, a co-founder and we're experiencing this beautiful meal. So, you know, how can I activate my imagination? Um, And Martin Luther King does such a beautiful job of this in his, I have a dream speech. It's just so we often pay attention to that speech because he, you know, people say, well, he says, I have a dream. I have a dream over and over again. And it's the kind of repetitive oratory Mm -hmm. that we know is, is so powerful about his speech. But one of the things that we, overlook often is that he really draws our attention to those um, very tactile, sensory, mm. imaginative uh, visions of his of the future. Mm. Mm. I, it's, a, it's a brilliant assertion. And I remember that section in the book where you talk about the use of the sensory experience to sort of fire off the imagination. I have a theory on your question, the one you you said, you know, why do we focus so much on the blame? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a defense mechanism against the shame that we might feel ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, if I I think back and I feel into my own body, I I can still feel shame associated with the Hulk. And so rather than wanting to be responsible for the conflict that's there, I seek to find fault, I seek to find someone to blame so that it's not me. Right. And um, one of the uh, adulting 
moves that I have come to understand is it is possible for you to be correct and for me to be correct. Mm-hmm. Right? It's possible for you to have a truth and for me to have a truth. It is possible for there to be um, conflict without blame and without shame. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, that was freeing for me to understand that stance. Yeah. Does this resonate with your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great insight that you have that it's, it almost reminds me of, of kind of a classic politician who might draw our attention away from the thing they don't want us to focus on by, you know, just having right. some other subversion happen so that we can all be looking at that instead of the thing that they're embarrassed by. I think that's really what you're describing. And, and absolutely, I had not um, thought about it in that way, but it's very plausible that yeah. the reason why we blame other people is so that we don't have to come face to face with the reality of who we may be, that we may be incredibly ashamed. And, 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 and it doesn't even have to be reality that it's, quote, our fault. It's just the sense that we are ashamed of our behavior. Right that may feed the need to find fault with other people. And so it's a kind of deflection right. against a, a, a very uncomfortable, negative, probably very, very old, pre-verbal even feelings of it's my responsibility. Right, right. I think also once we get into that, you know, one of the things that, that really has struck me so powerfully in, in doing this work is the habits that we get in. So mm. once we start going down that path, it just becomes easier and easier to do whatever mm. it is that we are doing. So if we're blaming other people, they'll just keep blaming other people. And it's a, such a self-reinforcing mechanism mm-hmm. um, that, you know, if I had to kind of, in some ways, if I had to sum up all of this work, it would be to say the work is about breaking that habit it's Mm. too easy to stay stuck in that habit of i blame them and then they do whatever they do whether they blame me back or they shut down or they blame themselves um so the work is how do you build a practice where you can observe yourself doing that thing doing Mm -hmm. that doing that blaming of the other person and then what would it look like to to interrupt that habit. And I think, I think that that interruption is that's the opportunity to form a new, what I would argue is an adulting habit. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an, it, and it's separate from, Oh, it's not all your fault. Therefore it's all my fault. Mm -hmm. Cause that movement keeps the conflict alive, but it's a different movement. It's a movement towards, wait a minute, let me look at this from a completely different angle and see conflict in a different way. Exactly. So in the book I describe, as you know, the four conflict habits that are very common that we often get stuck in. And I say, all of us have what I call a primary conflict habit. And so out of those four, there's one of them that, um, that we fall back on most easily as, a, as our default. And we all use all four of them under different circumstances. So the four being we blame other people, we shame and blame ourselves, which is mm-hmm. what you're talking about. 
um, we avoid or shut down in the face of conflict with other people. Um, and then we also kind of counterintuitively, we relentlessly seek to collaborate with other people, even when they refuse to cooperate with us. And we mm. see particularly in the startup world that you and I both mm. know so well and love so well, um, where you know collaboration is where it's at. And if you're not collaborating, you're not working cross-functionally, you know, there's, there's something right. wrong with you. Um, so people who have been trained or grown up in this world where collaboration is touted as you know the highest achievement, um, we, we can actually get into a habit of relentlessly doing that mm-hmm. where it becomes our limitation. It gets in our way. It stops us from being able to move forward, break through conflict, um, and achieve our goals. So each one of those four uh, habits, when they're taken to the extreme and when we do them habitually, they can, they can become our limitations. So that's what I would never say to somebody, oh, a great way to break your conflict habit of blaming others would be to blame yourself. No, absolutely hmm. not. The, tri- the tricky part is, is that the, the way to break a conflict pattern is that we don't, it, it's idiosyncratic for each situation. Hmm. So there's, I can't give you the one silver bullet where I'd say, well, if you typically have a pattern of a, a habit of blaming other people, then just do X, Y, Z. Hmm. Um, so it is a it's a bit up to you to figure out what would it look like for you to do something different. Although I will qualify that by saying, if you're in a habit of doing one thing, I have also been known to say it almost doesn't matter what else you do, as long as it's something different than you've done before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not not terrible if you've been blaming the other person. So kind of have a wake up call of, hmm, how am I responsible here, right? Maybe I'd shift it to not how am I to blame, but you know, what responsibility can I take or what contribution yeah. can I own here that I, you know, how have I contributed to this? Yeah, I'm, I might joke with something like, so how's that working for you? Right. You know? right. So I want to I, I want to uh, start to wrap us, but um, one of my favorite quotes on conflict comes from the Buddhist psychotherapist David Ricco. And this is from his book, um, How to Be an Adult in Relationship. And he says, to be adult in relationship is not to be conflict-free, but to resolve conflicts mindfully. And I think that's what you're talking about here, isn't it? I mean, there is a part of the book where you talk about the value of conflict. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just a matter of terminology. So Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with what you just said and with his points and the language that I'm using is slightly different. It's kind of inverted language because mm. when we use the language of resolve conflict, even if we're saying let's mindfully resolve conflict, what that says to me is that we think there's some way that we can kind of wrestle it to the ground. Sometimes mm. I think it's, you know, 40 years ago when the concept was totally new, of this idea that we could resolve conflict in a in a way that left everyone winning or everyone feeling mm. like they had gotten what they needed or wanted, I would have agreed with yes. You know, we want to mindfully resolve. But what I've learned and what the research shows is that some conflicts will never be resolved. Right? You think Ooh. of Middle East conflict, or even conflict in our own homes or marriages or teams with co-founders, you know, you're not going to resolve every issue. 
And I think it's a fallacy to tell ourselves that we are. And there can just be some lightness when we realize the goal is not necessarily to resolve every issue. If you're locked in a deep values-driven, emotionally hooking situation, unlikely that suddenly there's going to be you know, rainbows and unicorns um, where you've resolved everything. What's much more likely is that you can learn how to, by using these practices that we're talking about, can learn how to unhook yourself from that pattern or break free from the pattern that you're locked in with someone else. Because, you know, your habit locked in the pattern with their habit. And it gets it gets to be intransigent. It's 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 locked. So the work is to learn how to free ourselves from those cycles. And once we do it's almost like the conflict could even, you could imagine like there's still a circle going on there. We're just not in it anymore. Right. <laughs> we have I love that. from that dynamic. And guess what, by the way, when we free ourselves, we naturally free whoever else is involved too. Because if we're not in it, they're in it by themselves. Right. right? It's impossible to be stuck in a conflict by yourself. You naturally are freeing. That's the beauty of this is that when you free yourself, you naturally free other people as well. That's what I mean is that you could kind of observe it, watching it from a distance and it it might still do its thing, but you're not in it anymore. That is brilliant. That is so helpful. Um, Thank you for making that distinction. And, you know, I just bodily felt a lightness as you made, made that even more clear for me that it's really about unhooking ourselves from the Shenpa, to use the, the Buddhist terminology, from the, from the Tibetan Buddhist terminology of unhooking ourselves from that, that experience of being locked into it. Um, and I love the notion of really, I, th- I think what David is, is reaching for is the mindful aspect of it, but I think that you've expanded the definition of what does it really mean to resolve it may mean that the conflict exists, but I am not hooked anymore. And I suspect that's what you mean, perhaps, by conflict freedom. Yes, you got it. Yeah. Exactly right. Hmm. Exactly right. When we're free, it, it holds no meaning. There's no hmm. energy there. It just kind of dissolves. And that, that's what I was talking about before also about these aha moments that you see these people, you know, in a moment you can just see a flash and they're mm. never the same person again, ever. Mm. Have that insight. Mm. You, might, you, know, you might fall back and then you go forward, but that insight stays with you. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Jennifer. And I, again, I want to thank you for writing this book. Um, it's an important book. Uh, it's a useful book. Um, I will be using it in the work I do with clients and I will be recommending it to folks um, as well. And, you know, um, I think this is important work and um, I I just want to congratulate you on putting it out there. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jerry. Such a pleasure to be with you. You too, you too. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. 
and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash signup so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships in mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues how their behavior is making impact, and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot 360s, you can go to reboot.io slash 360.